We'll look at Genesis 2 through 4 this evening. We have a lot to cover. Um, Genesis, this is our series from Genesis 1 through 11. Um, thank you for your suggestions on uh, what we should call this series. Last year we had Ruth, and we called it Ruth Tober. Um, and then this year, I wasn't sure what to, Genesis Tober doesn't quite have the right ring to it. So I, I got a couple of suggestions from you all, so thank you for that. Uh, you're probably wondering what they are. Uh, what about, what about uh, Creatober? That's pretty good. It's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good suggestion. Um, then a couple of uh, Hebrew scholars decided to give me some Hebrew words. Um, Bereshtober? Uh, I can barely say that. That's, that's pretty good, though. That's really good. That's, uh, that, that word means uh, in the beginning. It fits. Maybe, maybe my favorite one is Tovtober. I like Tovtober. Tovtober is, uh, means good. Tov means good. Not Tovtober means good. Tov means good. That would be even better. Uh, it doesn't mean that. Um, Tovtober. So uh, the last Sunday of the, of the month we'll have Tovtoberfest. It's pretty good. All right. Enough of that. All right. Uh, again, we're going to take a literary approach to the study of Genesis. A literary approach. We're going to look at it as narrative because that is what it is. We're not going to look at it as necessarily a history book, although I believe they, these things are historical and are true. We're not going to look at it necessarily as a scientific book, as if all the answers are found in Genesis on science. Um, we're going to look at it as it's presented, as narrative, as a story, looking for what is the author trying to say? What is his theological point? Not just history and here's what happened, what can we learn for, from it, but... There's a point that the author is trying to get across, in this case Moses, as he's writing Genesis 1 through 11. After the big introduction of the book, um, the creation, we come to the first Toledot. Remember how I told you uh, last time, last week, that uh, Genesis is separated by um, uh, genealogies, if you will. It's by this phrase, the generations of. Okay, we see that. We're going to look at our first one. That the Hebrew word is toledot, and we're going to look at the first one. Okay, so look with me uh, in chapter two and verse four. You see that there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now look with me at chapter five, verse one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Okay, and it goes on. There'll be another one. So we're going to cover Genesis two through four together. The first big section after the introduction, the big introduction of the creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, verse 4. So we're going to overview three chapters. Um, we're going to move fairly quickly. There's going to be a lot of things in here that uh, we won't cover, but I want, to, I want to zoom out, zoom out, and catch some of the big points that the author is trying to make, and then uh, see how they might apply to our lives. What are the implications for our, for our lives? So I'm going to do a little bit of reading tonight. So uh, here we go. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll uh, look at verse 4 and follow. I'm going to read all of chapter 2, then we'll talk about chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the, hev the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. 
And a mist was growing up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to, the wa- to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are, are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the, one of, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, Genesis 2 is a rehearsal of the second part of day six that we talked about, where man and woman are created. God makes man from the dust of the ground and puts him in the garden where there are trees to provide him with food, plants. He's called to work it, the garden, and to keep it, keep the garden. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is good. Work is hard because of the fall, which we'll get to, but work is a good thing. We were created to work. So maybe application point number one, get to work. All right, keep it, he says, to work the garden and keep it. Think, guard it, protect it. And he says, there's two of those trees in there seem to have something special going on. One, the tree of life, and the second one that they're not to eat of is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's this command. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, eat of it, you shall surely die. There's the command from God. He can eat of every tree except the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I heard it put this way one time by a pastor. Man is put into a garden of yes. 
Yes, with one no. With one no. He, the pastor, then took that application and the implication as we create, as we create living spaces for, so application to parents, implication for parents. This is a kind of paradigm for the home. Parents create a garden of yes. Make it easy for your kids to obey. Do you know what I mean by that? Create a garden of yes. I've heard um, people talk about child-proofing your home. Okay? And I was like, can't you just tell them to not touch those things? Don't touch this, don't touch that, don't touch this, don't touch that. Don't touch that because that will electrocute you and that's bad. Don't touch this because if you break that, I'm going to be upset. You know? Don't touch these, don't touch these, don't touch these. And we think, can't you just tell them not to touch those things? Well, what have we just created? A garden of no. Right? So we think of child-proofing our home and so your kids can be free with only a few no's. And lots of no's can tend to exasperate your kids or as the Apostle Paul puts it to, to fathers, provoke them to anger. Because it's so hard to remember all this. Young children trying to remember all the no's. Okay, this but not this and sometimes that and not always that. Make it simple. Just like the Lord does with Adam here. A garden of yes. Then the Lord says to um, says in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. Okay, remember in the creation account, God says constantly, it was good, and it was good. And he created, and it was good. He said this, created, formed, it was good. And culminating in uh, chapter one, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, here, something in the narrative, something is not good. A man alone is not good. He needs a helper that is fit for him, according to verse 18, according to God. So, God brings all the animals in front of Adam, and he names them all. And whatever he named them, that's what they're called. But look at the end there in verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Think about all the animals, all of them, like Tame lions, elephants, bears, dogs, right? Man's best friend, right? Man's best friend. Horses, man's best helper. <laughs> not according to this. It's not good enough for Adam. So God creates woman and he puts Adam to sleep, takes out one of his ribs and makes a woman. And he wakes up and God brings the woman to the man, and he says this. Look at verse 23 again. This is at last, this, sorry, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see the, the similarity in the words there, woman and man? You see the, the play on words that's happening there? Just so you know, this wasn't written in English. But, um, I hope that's not a surprise to you, uh, but in the Hebrew, it is similar. Uh, so, she shall be called Isha, is the Hebrew word, because she was taken out of Ish. There's a play on words there, which is really sweet. He, in other words, he's just like, yes, yes. 
This is the helper that is fit for me. So, man shall leave his mother, his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Leave your father and mother, he says. Hold fast to a wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall be unified. Unified. They, they share unity together. Even with their differences, even within the diversity of man and woman, we have unity. And then the chapter ends kind of weird. And they were both naked and unashamed. Um, it's, it, the imagery, though, here, it's, it's kind of a, we're like, what is going on with that? Naked and unashamed, okay? And then it gets into the next part of the story. What, what is the imagery? That, so the imagery there is, is crucial. There's, there's uh, one author said, they're, they're not self-aware. They're not self-focused. There's no, there's no separation. That's the imagery. There's no separation between the two. There are no barriers between this man and his wife. None. Then chapter 3. I'm going to read all of chapter 3, and then we'll talk about it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to, gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And you're, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Uh, sorry. 
To the woman, he said, I shall multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband or your husband's position, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, uh, commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife skin, garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground which he was taken, from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Chapter 3. Now, enter the serpent, who was more crafty than any other beast of the field, verse 1 says in chapter 3. And then the serpent, he starts interacting with the woman. Now, we might be wondering, what, what happened to the main character of the story? God the ultimate main character, created a man and created for the man woman and they are to rule over the beasts. And now we have two minor character, characters, as the story goes, are in, interacting with each other. The, the woman and beast of the field. Beast. The serpent tempts Eve by causing her to question what God actually said. You see that? Did God actually say... Dot, dot, dot. And the woman's re reply is this. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. You see a discrepancy there? Did you pick up on that? She adds to it, right? She adds to God's command. God's command is don't eat of it, and she says, we're not supposed to eat of it. We're not even supposed to touch it lest we die. Is that what God said? She adds, neither shall you touch it. This is not what God said. Or think about this. Where, where did Eve get this info? The command was to who? Adam. And Adam, where, where is Adam at this point? In the story, where is he? That's the question we ha that should be in our minds. We don't know yet, except for I just read it, and we all know. Where is Adam? Someone added to what the Lord had said and called it God's word. Whether it was Eve adding that here or Adam when he told Eve, someone added to the word. And called it God's word. So don't, don't add to what the Lord has for us. Don't make up rules and regulations in addition to what God has and call them sin or, or sin against our great God. Don't call it that. We, we think we're protecting, but we're actually not. And this sin is the same sin of the Pharisees. 
adding, saying, no, you must do this, this, and this in addition to. And it might even seem wise, as the end of Colossians 2 says. The end of Colossians 2 says, but it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, the woman here looks at the tree, and it looked so good. Do you see the repetition there in verse 6? Look at verse 6 again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the same, same thing said in a different way, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He was, just, he was standing right there. The whole time, the man is right there. There's the man, right there. The one who is supposed to guard and protect this garden. To have dominion over all the, all the beasts of the field. Why didn't he step up and say something? Hasn't he be, been commanded by God to rule over, to have dominion over every living creature? Chapter 1, verse 28. Now, these minor characters convince him to go against God's command, and he sits back passively. He's supposed to lead, and he just watches. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound much like the sin of Aaron from this morning? Numbers chapter 12. Step up. He just goes along with the flow, Aaron does. Passively. Sinning. And the man has a direct command from God to lead, provide, and protect, and he's passive. Just lets it go down. In effect, the man and the woman decide that they know what's best. That's what they're deciding here. They're deciding here that they know what's best. God commanded that, but really, I know what's best. It's best that I know good and evil. So I'm going to decide what's in my best interests. I'm going to place myself above God, or shall we say, place myself as my own God. They make a decision independent of God. Immediately, verse 7, they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They immediately became self-aware and ashamed. They were ashamed. So they hid themselves from each other, and then they hid themselves from God, which is a bit laughable, right? We're, let's go hide in the garden that God just created. Who knows all things? Is the creator, sovereign Lord, the sovereign creator of all things. Let's go hide in there. He'll, he'll, he'll not find us, surely. But how often do we think that? Or maybe we don't think those things directly, but looking back, we're like, did I really think I was hiding from God when I was alone by myself and I decided to sin? Did I, did I really think I was hiding from God when my thoughts towards somebody were evil? Or is God all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful 
they hid themselves. I mean, so that, the silliness that we look at there, they're hiding themselves in, in this garden, and, and we ought to think, man, how often do we, too, act like that? They hid themselves from each other. They hid themselves from God. God and man were in unity. Man and woman were in unity. And then this unity was destroyed. What destroyed the unity? What destroyed it? Sin destroyed unity. Diversity didn't destroy unity. Diversity was a good thing. Their diversity, they're unified in their diversity. Good thing. What What broke that? Sin is what broke it. Diversity is a good thing. And the focus here in this, um, in this is, the, is on the man and his sin pass, uh, of being passive. His passivity is the sin. He does not obey God by ruling over all things. He sits back and he watches. God approaches him first. He, God knows what happened, right? He's not like, what, what happened? What, why are you hiding? He knows what happened, knows exactly what happened, and he approaches the man first. He says, God approaches him first, knows all, who knows all things, he knows what happened, and the man blames the woman, and then she blames the serpent, so God curses the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. Notice, too, God is a bit vague in his reason why to the serpent in verse 14, because you have done this. Then in verse 16, God doesn't give a reason for cursing the woman. And then verse 17, it's because the focus is on the man and his sin, the sin of the man. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. So don't take from that, don't listen to your wife. That's not what it's, not what it's saying. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife over and against the voice of God. In which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Adam directly disobeyed God and decided to listen to the voice of another human rather than the voice of God. Or to put it another way, he got the two greatest commandments mixed up. Love God and love neighbor. He decided to put a person above that, above God. So the serpent is cursed directly, lie on his belly, and the offspring of the woman will eventually have victory. Then the woman is cursed directly, pain and childbearing, and her husband will rule over her. But because of man's sin, he is cursed and the ground is cursed. The ground will need to be cultivated through pain and work and will soon, and he, the man, will soon return to the dust from which he came. He will surely die. So man died. Physically, death begins to reign. We're going to see that in chapter 5 with the many who die there. They live this long and then they die. They live this long and then they died. It's, it's the generations of Death. Physically, man be- death begins to reign. Spiritually, man dies because he's become separated from God. 
He's given life and vitality at creation. We talked about that last, last week. But then he decides to disobey so that full life and vitality that he once experienced relationship with God, that's gone. It's been broken. So they're sent out of the garden. They're sent out of God's garden. But there's hope. Did you see that? There's hope. Did you see it in verse 16? Sorry, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A man from the offspring of the woman will eventually, once and for all, destroy the one who is the serpent. The offspring will have his heel bruised, but the offspring... This offspring will have his heel bruised, but the offspring will bruise the head of the serpent. Crushed, destroyed, once and for all. And this is the first time that the Bible, in the Bible that the gospel is proclaimed. A man will be born, and he will conquer Satan. Again, hope. It's not over yet. And there's more hope given. Did you catch that in verse 20? Just in case you were wondering, life will continue. Even in this death curse, life will continue. The man called his, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Graciousness that God gives even in this death curse. Chapter 4, I'm not going to read this whole thing. We're going to work through it really quickly because I think the big points can be gathered rather quickly. So Adam and Eve have children. They have two sons, Cain and Abel, and they are different too. And it's explicitly mentioned that they are different. Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. They're brothers, but they're different. They're to be unified because they're brothers and they're different and are to be unified as brothers. They both bring offerings to the Lord. Look at verse 4. They bring offerings to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn... Oh, look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. They both bring offerings for the Lord, and the Lord had regard for Abel, his offering, and for Cain, in his offering, he had no regard. And we're not actually told why. And that's an age-old question, why? And I'm not satisfied with the answers that I've seen to that question because the author doesn't go there. He doesn't say why. doesn't explain why Abel over Cain. Remember, don't ask questions of the text that the text isn't trying to answer because then we can get all focused on that and that's not the point. I think he's intentionally leaves that part vague so the reader doesn't get focused on that act. But our focus ought to be on the response. Right? God, God makes a decree in chapter 2 and 3 and the parents decide no. Here, Cain and Abel come with an offering, and God makes the decision, and the response of Cain is anger. Verse 6, or at the end of verse 5. So Cain was very anger, angry, and his face fell. 
The Lord, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. In other words, God made a decision. Cain was not okay with it. He was angry. And since he strongly disliked God's decision, sin was crouching at the door. God's decisions are always right. He is just. He's always right. His decisions are always right. Independent of our feelings about that decision. God's decision is right. And we ought to trust. Then take note of what is about to happen. Take note of where the word brother is used in the next few verses. I underlined it in my Bible because I think it's uh, it's a point of repetition for a purpose. Okay? Look. Cain goes to Abel, his brother, and he kills Abel, his brother. And the Lord asks Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You see, you see sense of focus here? We already know they're brothers. He could have saved some time and space and just not had that part. Why does he keep telling us this? There's repetition there, and it drives home a point. A point. That's his brother. They're brothers. He's supposed to be in unity with him, but it's destroyed. Not because of their differences, but because of sin. Sin destroys unity. So sin is cursed. And he's sent away to be a wanderer on the earth. But <laughs> the Lord will protect his life. And I love, in, in the Lord's punishment, there's always this grace that comes through. In verse 14 and 15, Behold, you have driven my, this is Cain saying to the Lord, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Grace. Then Cain has a son and much offspring, life and hope. And then Adam has another son, Seth, to take the place of Abel. And look how it ends in verse 26b. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Again, we see hope. We see this downward spiral that's happening here from, from the fall onward. We see this. And all in it are placed these glimpses of grace and hope from God. Life continues in connection and relationship with God even continues. A couple of implications for us tonight. Number one, Diversity does not destroy unity. Sin destroys unity. You saw that one coming. Sin destroys unity. Unity in diversity is expressed as a, as a good thing. Adam and Eve are different. They are one. Cain and Abel are different. They are brothers. They ought to be one. Sin destroys unity with man. And sin destroys unity with God. Adam and Eve hid themselves from each other. They cover themselves up. 
they hide from God, or at least they think they are, they try to. Adam and Eve are sent out of God's garden. Cain, too, is sent away in chapter 4. But in both cases, God does not leave them outright. What a grace. So, diversity is a good thing. Diversity is a good thing. Differences are good things. I'm different than Abby, my wife. And that's a good thing. Even as I look around in this church tonight, I'm different than all of you. Right? We're, we're all different. And enjoy the diversity that we have in the church. Even if people don't look like us, or eat or drink like us, or sing songs like us, even if people have different convictions about the scriptures and about how we ought to live, diversity is a good thing and is therefore to be celebrated. That unity in diversity. We want unity, sorry, one person say, we want unity, but not uniformity. Right? We don't look alike. We don't. We don't raise our kids the same way. We don't enjoy the same kinds of music. We're not born in the same generation. We're not born in the same state. Some of us not born in the same country. We, don't, we didn't all go to the same college and have the exact same experiences. We're different, and praise be to God that we can come together and be unified in our differences because of the commonality that we have in Christ. That's where we're unified, in Christ. Enjoy the unity of the body of the Christ. Our unity is found in him, in creation, in Christ. Implication number two, and this is the last one. God has provided a way back into relationship with him. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. We've looked like that. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans chapter 5. Continuing. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for, and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Praise the Lord. The way into relationship with the Lord is only through his Son, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's wrath against our sin has been poured out on his Son. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be sent away. Christ took the wrath for us. Do we get that? Do we still feel the importance of that? Do we still love that glorious truth? Do we still stand in awe of this? Have we lost our awe? 
Is this truth just mundane? For me, there's usually one reason why I've lost the awe of my salvation. One reason why I'm tempted to stand with glazed over eyes at the glorious nature of the cross. And it's this. I have forgotten the seriousness of my sin. We have sinned against God and we need to be redeemed. And it's not that I look at my life consciously and think, man, I'm a pretty good guy. No, I may never say that, but I often live that way. Do we live that way? Pretending that we have no sin and deceiving ourselves? Have I forgotten that my sin separates the unity that I have with the Father? I deserve that separation. I deserve that separation for all of eternity. But for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that, we, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We again can have unity with God and unity with each other. May this never grow old. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The sin that separated us from God has been removed if we decide to follow him, if we place our trust in Christ. If God grants us the the gift of faith and repentance, it's done. It's done. Our sins have been forgiven and we have been given the righteousness of Christ so that we stand before God justified, declared righteous in communion with him for all eternity. Let us pray and praise the Lord. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to pay the penalty of this sin. Oh Lord, we look at these chapters in Genesis and we're overwhelmed with the sin that we see. But we're so grateful for the lining of grace that we see and the hope and the life that you continue to give. The declaration that someone is coming to save us from our sins. And we as New Testament believers We see who that is. It is your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for sending your son to bear your wrath so that we don't have to. Lord, maybe there's some in here tonight who have not placed their faith in you. Lord, turn their hearts. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and for that we praise your name. Lord, thank you for the relationship that we can have with you because of this but also thank you for the relationship that we get to have with each other because of this.
because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. And I get to call these here in this body my brothers and sisters and dwell in unity with them. Celebrate communion with them because of the unity that we have in Christ. Through all of our differences, all the diversity that is in here tonight, we praise your name for the unity that we find in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for not leaving us by ourselves, but giving us a body. We love you so much. And it's for your name's sake we pray. Amen.